Open your Bibles, please, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We've been looking at the Lord's Prayer, and I want to read through it again here in Matthew 6, verses 9, and we'll read to verse number 15. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We've been looking at the Lord's Prayer for several weeks now, and we could spend even much more time than that. Um, the Lord willing, this is the last Sunday. It has so much to teach us in, in these few verses. The past two Sundays, we've been looking at the petitions, the general petitions and the specific ones. There are two groups of three each, if you wish. And we might be tempted to think that it's really the second group. It's, this is where we come into the picture when we pray about our daily bread and forgiveness and not being led into temptation. That the first group, it might be imagined, we are just sort of to sit by as God does these things. That he is to hallow his name and that his kingdom is to come and his will is to be done. So we might imagine that God acts in the world in a general way in the first group, so we're not overly concerned with that, but in the second group, in a specific way in our lives. Um, So that the first group doesn't really touch us, but the reality is it does. Uh, The first three petitions are already reality. What we are praying in the first three petitions is that they would be true in our lives. God's name is holy, but is it holy in my life? His kingdom has come. But is he my king? Has his kingdom come in my life? His will is going to be done, but is it being done in my life? By God's grace in our lives and in our living, his name would be honored, his kingdom would come, and his will would be done. As I mentioned last Sunday, when we come to the second group of petitions, we immediately notice a difference, and that is in the first section, the pronoun is the second person. Your name, your kingdom, your will. And in the second section, it's the first person pronoun that we find. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And lead us not into temptation. And here we, we are confronted with personal needs. Um, I would argue that we should not just pray the first part, but we must also pray the second part. I actually don't think that's a problem in this generation. I think we're more than happy to pray the second group, the first group not so much. Um, briefly to review what we looked at last week, but also to add uh, to some of it. Give us today our daily bread. It recognizes, first of all, that we are physical beings. We need food. We don't live on air, if you wish. We live on food. God made us this way. When God made Adam and Eve, he put them in a place in a garden where there was food for them from the trees. Um, There are those who would make this prayer so spiritual, if you wish, that they think that the daily bread here must refer to something else, something spiritual. In fact, some of the early church fathers said that it really, this isn't what it could be. Um, It couldn't speak of something so common as bread, but in fact it does, and that should tell us a lot. Um, 
The petition resonated, I think, with Jesus' listeners much more than it does with us. Many of them, if not most of them, were day laborers. They got paid at the end of the day, and that would buy enough food for the next day. They didn't have a savings account. They didn't have pensions. They lived day by day. But then even further back, when they thought of Israel in the wilderness without food, God provided them with food. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? You know, man had fallen on the ground. They woke up and there it was. They did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord your God has given you to eat. So I asked the question last week, does this petition even make sense for us today? Um, we don't think in terms of daily uh, expenditures, if you wish, or economic matters. Uh, for the most part, people are paid either weekly or every other week or monthly. Uh, we tend to shop not every day for food, um, maybe once a week, maybe twice a week. But the idea of daily bread, I think, does not, it doesn't resonate with us as it did with the first listeners. We have mortgage payments, car payments, bills to pay, and we pay them every month, not every day. And as a result, our perception of time has been altered. And so the question is asked, should we in fact update the Lord's Prayer? And instead of saying, give us today our daily bread, that we should say, uh, give us today what we need. No, we should change the way that we think. It points to the fact that day by day, we are dependent upon God. You may only get a paycheck once a month. That doesn't mean that's the only day that you're dependent upon God. Every day, we are dependent upon God. If we pray for daily bread, then how often should we pray? Well, at least every day as we pray for our daily bread. And we should be reminded that what we have to eat is not a natural birthright. It is, in fact, a gift of God. It has been for centuries the practice of God's people universally to pray before meals, to thank God for the meals. And at least in this culture, it is referred to as saying grace. That is, there's a recognition that the food we have to eat has been given to us as a gift of God's grace. And we thank him for that. The second specific petition is forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. I'll spend a bit more time on this. It's been pointed out that Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer does not say forgive us our debts, but forgive us our sins. Why the difference? Again, as I mentioned last week, Matthew was much more familiar with Aramaic. That's what Jesus spoke as he taught. And the word in Aramaic for sin is the same word as debt. Uh, Luke wrote in Greek as did Matthew, um, but they wrote in Greek. And Luke uses the word sin because this, I think, is what is intended. But in Aramaic, it could be debt uh, as well. Luke also, I think, points to the sins of commission, doing the things we should not have done, whereas Matthew focuses on the debts of omission. We are indebted. We have not done the things that we should have done. Sin is the worst of all possible debts. We have nothing with which to pay. Can't even pay against the principal, the interest, let alone the principal. Our debts are growing, and it is God to whom we are indebted. So it is something we cannot pay. And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us. If you think about it on the face of it, 
This is a rather brash and brazen, if not audacious, request. One could argue that it is almost shameless to go to someone to whom you owe something and say, in the imperative, by the way, forgive me my debts. Cancel whatever it is that I owe you. But this is what Jesus teaches us to pray. God is our Father. We are his children, but we still sin. And therefore, we pray for forgiveness, for pardoning, pardon for our sins and canceling our debt. We are God's children, but we are guilty children. And that's why in our worship, we have the prayer of confession. We acknowledge our guilt. This petition reminds us on the one hand of our guilt, but on the other hand of God's forgiveness. We should, as we pray this, be reminded that there is no other way, no other method for this debt to be canceled. Sin against God can only be canceled or forgiven by God. And he does forgive sins. Listen to how forgiveness is described in the Old Testament. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. From Psalm 85. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. From Isaiah 43. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. From Isaiah 44. And then in Micah 7, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Therefore, it is wonderful to have your sins forgiven, as David tells us. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What a gracious and wonderful thing it is to have our sins forgiven. But we cannot, we should not forget that there is a price to be paid. That's one reason I'm grateful that Matthew does, in fact, use the word debt. Because the debt has to be paid. I think if it's forgive us our sins, we think, okay, yeah, that's whatever. Yeah, cancel it, it's gone. But with the word debt, there is a sense that you owe something and that has to be paid. And that was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid for our sins and canceled our debt. The writer of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The debt cannot be paid. Therefore, the death of Jesus pays for our sins. It is not enough that he died for our sins, but he died in a very terrible way. Paul tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So we must recognize the wonder of being forgiven, but also the cost. But then there's another thing, and this perhaps is the most difficult part of this petition. We are also to forgive others. So I've mentioned, some people ask, well, does this mean God will only forgive me if I forgive others? Is my, is my forgiveness conditional? Well, if our forgiveness is conditional on us forgiving others, then we're in serious trouble, let's be honest. If God forgives us as we have forgiven others, what will be our state? I don't think it would be very pleasant. And yet Jesus tells us this is how we are to pray as we have also forgiven our debtors. I would suggest to you that Jesus is not suggesting a quid pro quo, this for that type of arrangement. 
That is, if you forgive, then God will forgive you. Stop and think a minute. Jesus tells us at the outset that we are to pray our Father in heaven. It points to the reality that we have already been forgiven. We are already God's children. We've been reconciled to God. He has forgiven us. He forgives us. We are to forgive others. Therefore, this petition recognizes that we have no right to ask for forgiveness if, in fact, we have not done what has been done for us if we do not forgive others. The issue is not temporal sequence. Which, who gets forgiven first? No, the issue is attitude. Do you have an attitude of forgiveness? See, that's why I read verses 14 and 15 today, even though it's not technically part of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus tells us, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. In verse 14, we have a positive statement, and in verse 15, a negative statement. The emphasis appears to be more on the warning of judgment rather than on the promise of forgiveness. I think Jesus is trying to warn us we need to have a spirit, an attitude of forgiveness toward others. It is interesting that similar words to what we find here are found in Mark and Luke, but in different contexts. Let me read to you from Luke. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, it does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. That on the face of it is an amazing statement. But listen to what comes next. Therefore, I tell you, I'm sorry, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your sins. In a passage that many of us have struggled with, the idea that God will give you whatever you ask for in prayer, including asking a mountain to be cast into the sea, It is in that context that Jesus says that we are to forgive our our brothers. In Luke 17, Jesus says, So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day or in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Again, the issue of faith is pivotal here. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. As in Mark and in Luke, I would suggest to you that what Jesus presents here is the prayer of faith. And it includes forgiveness. Forgiveness, as one writer puts it, is a summary, a single word summary, both the Christian gospel and the Christian ethic. That is what we believe, the gospel, and how we are to act, our ethics. One might say, what is involved in forgiving another person? Let me suggest some things for you to think about. I don't want to belabor them or spend too much time on them, but just think about these. First of all, we need to realize how much God has forgiven us. This would shrink the offense against us, I think, to something quite trivial. It would put it into perspective, if nothing else. Secondly, there needs to be repentance. There needs to be an acknowledgement that something wrong has been done, both to the offender and to the one who has been offended. Uh, 
Thus, there needs to be prayer. How often do we ask for forgiveness? As often as we sin. Unlike the prayer for daily bread, I think we are in need of moment-by-moment forgiveness. One might ask, do I ask for forgiveness and then forgive? It's like, I can't forgive you right now because I I still need to be forgiven myself. Um, Well, listen, if you're unwilling to forgive, then why would you expect that God would forgive you? And then this I find fascinating. Jesus, in the specific petitions, puts daily bread ahead of forgiveness. Um, It is, if you wish, Jesus says we are to pray, give us today our daily bread. And then he says, forgive our sins. Living when and where we do, the idea of needing forgiveness, I think, sounds almost primitive almost barbaric. In an age filled with self-esteem, we feel like we don't need to ask for forgiveness. And as a result, we do not forgive as we should. Those who recognize they have been forgiven are much more likely to forgive than those who think they have not done anything wrong. They don't need to be forgiven. And yet somehow they become quite judgmental against other people. And it follows. If you have been forgiven, you will forgive. If you don't think you've done anything worthy of forgiveness, then you will not forgive others. What about repentance? In Luke 17, Jesus says, you know, if your brother repents, then you are to forgive him. Repentance is an essential part of the gospel. When John the Baptist came and then Jesus after him, they both preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. On the day of Pentecost, after Peter preached and the people said, what should we do? He said, repent. That's very good. Um, But what is repentance? We who have been Christians for most of our adult lives, for most of our lives, it's, it's one of those words that we use all the time. But what, in fact, is repentance? Is it regret, saying you're sorry? Is it remorse, hopefully with some tears thrown in? Is it a change of mind? Um, yes, all of the above. But I think most people focus on the I'm sorry part, the regret and the remorse. And I think what we find in the New Testament is more the change of mind. I found this fascinating in studying for this. Paul uses the word repent only one time in his writings and repentance only four times. What instead he focuses on is faith and believing and trusting God. This includes repentance. So I think that our focus should be on trusting God and recognizing that that isn't just flagellating ourselves and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner. But rather saying, I've been thinking the wrong way. I've been thinking this is okay. And I know it's not. Repentance is saying, listen, I'm not going to think this way anymore. This is unacceptable. And turn in faith to God. When we repent, we acknowledge that God is right, that we are wrong, what we've done is wrong. We should have remorse for having done what is wrong, and we accept full responsibility. We don't, like Adam, say, it's the woman, she gave me something to eat. And we turn from the wrong to the right, to the good. And we change our thinking about what is wrong, and we mark it as wrong. Simply put, what we say is, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
on earth, that is in my life, as it is in heaven. The third specific request is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And on the face of it, at first, this might seem to be a strange request. Should we not instead ask God, don't lead us into temptation? No, why do we ask God for this? Why do we ask him not to lead us into temptation? Shouldn't we say lead us out of temptation? It is as though temptation is over there and we're here and we're saying to God, don't, don't lead us into that dangerous place. In James 1, we read, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So God can't tempt us, okay? But this petition seems to lean in the opposite direction. Again, some things to think about in thinking about this. Jesus does not say that we are to pray, do not tempt us, okay? So there can be no question that Jesus doesn't see the Father as the source of temptation, but rather it is the evil one. The petition is, lead us not into temptation. Do not lead us into a situation wherein or in which we might be tempted. But then think about it. What happened to Jesus after his baptism? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So is Jesus saying that we should pray, don't let happen to us what happened to Jesus? You led him into the wilderness, don't let that happen to us. I don't think so. Consider where temptations come from. I would say primarily two sources. The first is within ourselves. It's a sad and sobering reality that we are our own worst enemy. We have no need that anyone would tempt us. We do quite well on our own. Remember what we saw when we studied the vices. But the second, and this is usually what we think of with temptation, it comes from the outside. It's bad enough that we have to be on guard against uh, ourselves, but we have enemies on the outside. And in this petition, it is the evil one who has many allies, many weapons, which, with which he assaults us daily. So God is not the source of temptation, but rather it is the evil one. The question we might ask, though, is if God allows us to be tempted, is he not, in fact, party to the temptation? Isn't he sort of a a co-belligerent with Satan that allows us to be tempted? If he allows Satan to tempt us, is he not, in fact, responsible as well? No, he is not. This is a distinction we need to keep in mind. God tests us. It is Satan who tempts us. You say, what's the difference? The difference is the intended result. God tests us that we might grow, that we might mature, that we might be purified, that we might grow stronger and develop as children of God. Satan tempts us that we might sin. He wants us to fall. This is not what God intends. So in the Old Testament, we read, and this is in Deuteronomy 8, Moses reminds Israel, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And then in the New Testament, Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And I would say tests. 
These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, honor, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter calls them trials. We could call them tests. We could even call them temptations. They are for our good. Because even though Satan intends for us to fall, God can use it as a way of trying our faith. It says with Joseph's brothers. Joseph told him, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Satan comes and seeks to tempt us to fall, but God in fact can use it to make us stronger. Well, then this leads to another question. If temptations can be for our good, that they can make us stronger, then why does Jesus teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation? Maybe temptations are a good thing, that we can be stronger. James wrote at the beginning of his epistle, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. In other words, welcome, you know, almost bring them on. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If trials and temptations can teach us, if they can develop us, if they can cause us to mature, why should we pray against such things? You know the expression, no pain, no gain. Those who train physically must endure pain in order to gain strength or speed. Is Jesus saying that we should pray, please, Father, uh, no pain? If we prayed that, then in fact there would be no gain in our lives. We would not mature. This petition is asking that our Father would not allow us to be overcome by temptation. In other words, do not allow us to be led into temptation that overwhelms us, but rescue us from the evil one. We are not to desire trials or temptations. Don't worry, they will come. You don't need to pray for them. And we will fail oftentimes. It is interesting that the petition right before this is the one about forgiveness. Um, because there's a recognition that, in fact, we will fail. We are to look to our Heavenly Father as the one who will deliver us. One more thing here, and a different take on it, if you wish, looking at it from a different angle. Um, in literature, and here we'd have to look to Becca, but in literature, there is something called litotes, which for us common folk is double negative, in which you use a double negative to make a stronger positive. So when you say not a few, you mean many. And when you say not bad, uh, you mean good. There's the passage in Acts when Luke says they had been shipwrecked on Malta, that the natives there showed us no small kindness. And I remember someone preaching a sermon and sort of railing against the Maltans. They couldn't even show a little kindness. No, you missed the point, okay? I think we may do the same thing with this last petition. Lead us not, that's a negative. Temptation, that's a negative thing as well. So it's two negatives. So in fact, this petition is lead us into righteousness. Guide us to do the right thing. By using the double negative, Jesus is pointing to something else. I think too often we have seen this petition only in the negative. We fail to recognize and acknowledge that just as we need our daily bread, we also need guidance moment by moment by our Father in heaven.
It's part of being a sinner, being fallen, that we seek to be independent and self-sufficient. It is it's a great tragedy that we come to Jesus and we say, save us. And then once he does, we're like, thank you, we've got it covered. We can handle it from here on out. It's one of the wonderful things about seeing the babies, the children grow up here in church as they go through these stages of, of dependence. And then they reach that stage of, yeah, I'm, I can handle this. until, And then they fall flat on their faces. And then, But we as God's people, lead us out of temptation. We should pray, guide us, lead us in the right path. If the Lord's Prayer teaches us anything, it is that we cannot sustain ourselves. We need daily provision. We need forgiveness. We need guidance. And if you look at these three requests, they cover the three aspects of time. Our daily bread is present. Give us today our daily bread. Forgiveness, the things we've done in the past. We've committed a sin, we pray for forgiveness. And guidance is for the future. Lead us into the right paths. The last part is the doxology, and some versions do not include this longer, ender, longer ending. I think it should be there. The doxology, or doxology, comes from the Greek word uh, meaning glory. It is used to praise God and to acknowledge his glory. I mentioned this last week. This is at the end of the prayer, but this is, in fact, the foundation of the whole prayer. Listen. If the kingdom, the power, and the glory do not belong to God, then why are we praying to him? Why are we looking to him for moment by moment, for day by day sustenance, if in fact the glory does not belong to him, if the power does not belong to him, if the kingdom does not belong to him? It's almost like the movie Sixth Sense, that at the end you're told something, And then you go back and, ah, it all now makes sense. In the same way in the Lord's Prayer, when we come to this doxology, we're like, now I get it. Now I get it. This is why we can pray these things, because the kingdom and the power and the glory belong to God. And then we have that word, amen, a word that we find in the Old Testament, a word of affirmation or a word of agreement. Yes, I agree with what's been said can be translated as, so be it. The end of the prayer, yes, this is the way it is. It's not a mere wish, oh, I hope that this is the way it's going to be. As we've seen, the verbs here are imperatives. This here is, if you wish, a stamp on it saying, yes, this is the way that it is. In this prayer, we find something that should create in us a great sense of wonder the wonder at the graciousness of God. He allows us to call him Father. He whose name is holy and hallowed, who has brought us into his kingdom and by his will has saved us. He who daily provides what we need and much, much more. He who has forgiven us, without whose grace we would not be able to continue, He who has the kingdom, the power, and the glory. This should, I think, humble us deeply. That in seeing and reading this prayer, we come to understand what God has done for us. I've said before, and I'm convinced, if the Lord's Prayer was the only thing that Jesus had given us, 
that would almost be sufficient because it covers everything. It tells us that God is our Father and that He is holy, that His kingdom is coming, it has come, His will has been done, will be done. And then we look to Him for daily, moment by moment sustenance. And He will do this, He can do this, because His is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And as God's people, we should say, Amen. So be it. It is true. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are familiar enough with what we call the Lord's Prayer. So much so that we perhaps have lost sight of the profound truths that are revealed in it beginning with the fact that you are our Father. You are so gracious. You have been, continue to be gracious to us. You provide what we need and so much more. You forgive our sins. And you guide us, interestingly enough, even when we don't ask for that guidance. We tend to focus on ourselves and our sinfulness when we have failed you, when we should focus on you, you who have the kingdom and the power and the glory. May your spirit speak to our hearts. May you draw us closer to yourself. We are your children. We are guilty children, but beyond that, we are children of grace. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name.